Pushkin. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is Accelerating Innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. Did you know some travel credit cards offer 10 times points on your spending? Don't miss out on big rewards for your next trip. NerdWallet lets you compare smart travel credit cards side-by-side, curated by an expert team of finance nerds. What could future you do with better travel rewards? A free flight? A room upgrade? Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at NerdWallet.com. Reminder, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. What if AI could help your business deliver mission-critical outcomes with speed? With IBM Consulting, your business can design, build, and scale trusted AI using Watson X and modernize the way you work to accelerate real impact. Let's create AI that transforms your business. Learn more at ibm.com consulting. IBM, let's create. I think I am a journalist first and foremost, and I do have this desire to go to extreme places. Um, like, I'm be, be honest about that. Like, journalists are weird. Like, we do run towards burning buildings. You know, it takes a certain kind of personality type to go into a war zone and to go into a disaster zone where everybody else is going in the opposite direction. That was Naomi Klein. I'm Sam Fragoso, and this is Talk Easy. Welcome to the show. Hey, everyone. Today, our guest is journalist, climate change activist, and best-selling author, Naomi Klein. She is currently the senior correspondent at The Intercept and the inaugural Gloria Steinem Endowed Chair in Media, Culture, and Feminist Studies at Rutgers University. That was also, for those counting, my 97th try at that sentence. You're likely familiar with her work in books, including New York Times bestsellers like No Logo and The Shock Doctrine, The Rise of Disaster Capitalism. Her latest book from 2019 is called On Fire, The Burning Case for a Green New Deal. As we continue making this show in the middle of a pandemic, we're going to have on guests who can speak to this moment, this crisis, with expertise. If you'd like to stick with us, we'll be announcing our lineup for the weeks ahead this Wednesday, April 1st, on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. You can follow us over at Talk Easy Pod. I mention all this because I know we're all trying to build some structure in this precarious time. So everyone here at Talk Easy is doing their best to stay consistent and to make this show for you every Sunday morning. Today is Naomi Klein. She was born in Montreal, and she brings her uniquely journalistic and Canadian perspective to the COVID-19 crisis. She is a tireless reporter who's been researching and writing about American politics and capitalism for the past 20 years. She's also traveled across the globe to speak on the climate crisis, which is not disconnected from what's playing out right now. This episode is unique for a lot of reasons, which we get into right at the top here. But before we do that, I just want to thank you for being here and making us part of your week. I really hope you are safe, sound, and social distancing wherever you are, whoever you are. Now, 
Here is Naomi Klein. Naomi Klein, thank you so much for being here and for doing this with me. How are you feeling right now? Um, well, I'm very happy to be doing it with you. Thank you for having me remotely. Um, I am I am not super well, I have to admit. I've been sick. We were supposed to do this last week, but I canceled because I thought I had a cold, but now I'm pretty sure it wasn't just a cold because I found out that I was exposed to uh, the coronavirus. A, a close colleague um, uh, stayed over at my house 12 days ago, and she became sick, and she, she lives in Canada. Um, so when she got back to Canada, she got tested because Canada has a functioning healthcare system. And so we're assuming that actually we, we all, like everyone in my house, <laughs> um, has it and with varying degrees. My son doesn't have any symptoms, but my husband and I are both fighting off some, some strange virus, and we're hoping it's just a mild case and that it doesn't get worse. Uh, well, you are uh, an absolute trooper for doing a podcast in this condition. If I was at all sick, I wouldn't be taking calls from my parents, uh, let alone a stranger. So I thank you truly for being here and talking with me. And I'm wishing you and your family a speedy recovery. You know, as someone living with what may very well be the virus, what do you make of where our country is at with the COVID-19 crisis? Oh, I don't feel like we have metabolized what this what this crisis means, and we don't know how this is going to play out. We are seeing more and more of these um, diseases that jump from animals to humans where we ha haven't developed any immunity, and we know that there's a relationship between the way we are treating the natural world, um, the fact that more and more wilderness is being destroyed to meet human needs is the reason why we are seeing um, these these new kinds of illnesses. It's interrelated with so many other crises. You know one of the one of the factors that we're learning about around these types of diseases in general is that you can't pry it apart from so many other global crises. Like for instance, many people on this planet get their primary source of protein from fish. But because of overfishing and because of coral bleaching, um, they aren't able to. So they have to find other sources of protein. And that is what often pushes people into um, previously protected forests to find what's known as bushmeat. And that carries diseases, new diseases into human populations. So it's all interconnected. I think there are a lot of lessons to be learned from crises if we're willing to learn them. I find myself thinking a lot about my time in Puerto Rico after Hurricane Maria hit. I was there researching and also speaking about my work on disaster capitalism and um, some Puerto Rican friends um, would talk a lot about uh, Maria as an unveiling, that it blew the lid off the whole island in this really literal way where all of these other crises that had been hidden away inside people's homes, inside people's private lives, all these crises that they were bearing in solitude were suddenly revealed when the storm ripped through the island and they were understood to be actually collective crises. Like people saw the depths of their neighbor's poverty, and they saw how vulnerable their economy was built to be, to be dependent on all these imports that they no longer had. So all of these things. So I, I kind of feel the same way about this crisis, that it is this unveiling that where we are all seeing how enmeshed our fates are. Like that's one of the things that's being revealed. So I'm trying to learn as much as I can from what we are seeing, right? Like we're all seeing our dependence on people who maybe we don't appreciate enough, like nurses. I mean, I find myself thinking about how much I appreciate my son's teacher because I'm suddenly finding myself being my son's teacher. 
multiple times a day, I, I appreciate the patience of the of the professionals who do this because we really aren't nearly as good at it. So maybe we will learn how enmeshed our fates are. That's maybe something we could learn. I think you're right. You know, the virus has exposed some larger systemic issues, especially within our healthcare system. And I know over the past week, you've been talking about the potential rise of coronavirus capitalism or uh, disaster capitalism. You wrote, after a shocking event, war, coup, terrorist attack, market crash, or natural disaster, the government exploits the public's disorientation. They suspend democracy, pushing through radical free market policies that enrich the 1% at the expense of the poor and middle class. Do you think that's where we're headed? I have been thinking about this for a couple of decades now. And I think my my interest in it dates back to 9-11 and that having come at a time in my own political life where I had been very involved in social movements that were taking on corporate power and trying to challenge the way in which we had globalized our economies that was fueling this very rapid race to the bottom for labor standards and environmental standards. And so I was part of what used to be called the anti-globalization movement. We always rejected that, that description, but I had written this book called No Logo that came out in the year 2000 when I was in my late 20s. And it was uh, a book about this economic model and it's, and all the people that had been sacrificed on its altar. And what happened when the September 11th terrorist attacks took place is that that whole conversation about the injustices of that economic system and how it was fueling inequality around the world and environmental devastation around the world was just severed, was just shut down. I remember so vividly this phrase that would be used all the time, which was, they would say, that's pre-9-11 thinking, right? Right. Um, if you, and, and it was like this idea that there was like, it was like um, AD and, you know, before Christ and after, you know, it was like nothing you knew before this applies. Everything is new. And it was like this incredible indoctrination erasing our brains was what it felt like. Like nothing you knew before this event is at all applicable. Everything is new. If you try to talk about history, you are trying to justify it. If you try to talk about context, you're an apologist. Anything that you were doing before is no longer relevant. Um, Somebody once described it to me, it was as if somebody pressed a giant delete button on everything we were doing before. And so ever since living through that, I have thought about how elites use that state of shock. And 9-11 was a huge shock. We had never seen anything like it in the United States. And we were trying to make sense of this new world. And we were doing what people do when they're trying to make sense of something like that, which is come together and try to provide narrative and context. You know, people were gathering in squares in New York City and just like talking to their neighbors. And I remember George Bush going on television and saying, everybody should just go shopping. <laughs> you know, that, like, don't, don't talk to each other, shop. You know, that's how, how we get out of this. And so that's what sort of set me on the path that led me to write the shock doctrine of, of, of really trying to understand this as a tactic that actually there are some pretty sinister players in our world who understand that in a moment where it feels like everything we knew in the past no longer applies, where the ground is shifting under our feet and we are in one of those moments now, those are really profitable moments if you happen to be um, you know, a large corporation who has connections to the sitting president and you might get yourself a $60 billion bailout with no strings attached and you could do it in the name of workers and you could actually pocket most of it for your shareholders and you know, board members and executives and you know, we could end up with a worse global recession because of it. And that's what happened in 2008. And the danger of that is that then those huge expenditures become the excuse to impose 
brutal economic austerity on the public. And it becomes the reason why you have to cut back Social Security or close down hospitals or close down schools. And, you know, we got a, a dose of this in North America, but they got it a lot worse in Europe. Um, after the financial crisis. And, you know, we probably remember the huge uprisings in, in Southern Europe to try to stand up to this. But, um, you know, once the money has gone out the door, it, it's really hard to get back control. I think what's also hard is that discussions around this subject, about the dangers of capitalism, is really challenging for some people. Lots of those folks are likely right-leaning, but Democrats fall into this camp too, right? I mean, people who believe in the virtues of capitalism. So when you're presenting this data and these ideas, are you considering how your own political ideology may impact how an audience hears what you're trying to say? Well, I think you have institutions that are kind of hardwired to maximize profit. It isn't personal. It's not about saying that these are terrible people. It is that they are sort of bound to maximize their profit in order to fulfill their corporate charters. And so they do it. And I don't think that it is everybody who voted for Donald Trump who is responsible for this. I don't think that it is all people who are conservative who are responsible for this. Mm -hmm. Um, But I do believe that we have an economic system that is incredibly dangerous and is create becoming more unequal with every one of these shocks. You know, I come to these conclusions from not ideology, but honestly reporting. Like I started just as a journalist and going to disaster zones and doing this reporting, you know, everywhere from going to Iraq under occupation to being in New Orleans when it was still underwater after Hurricane Katrina and hearing with my own ears real estate developers saying, you know, this is an opportunity for us to get rid of public housing and, you know, have condominiums instead. And so it's not a conspiracy. It's just what actually happens in these moments of shock. And what the reason why I don't despair and why I do think that dialogue is important and for people to understand what happens when we are confused and we are in shock and we're searching to understand the world is that the more we understand this tactic, the more we can resist it. Most people don't want this on the right or the left. They do not want this. Most people want to take care of their neighbors. They're worried about their families. They have a healthy suspicion of large corporations. They're not interested in making Jeff Bezos richer from this. Mm. Um, They want the economy to get back up and running. um, And they need to have better options on the table than they have right now than just writing a blank check. Um, We should learn from what this country did to fight the Great Depression um, and the Dust Bowl. There's incredible history to draw on, both inspiration and important mistakes that were made, people who were left out of those programs, ways that they failed. But that's a really rich history to learn from. And so I think it's important to surface that and have these discussions, look at ways in which that ideological divide was bridged in the 1930s and the 1940s during the Great Depression and during the war effort, when this country did some amazing things. (laughs) So I don't see it through a left-right lens in, in that way. I want to go back to something you just said. Uh, You're in New Orleans in the aftermath of Katrina, and you hear this corporate power player talking about how now is an opportunity to eliminate public housing. My first response to that idea is, how could you possibly do this to people? When tragedy strikes, how could you exploit human life? I think my response is not an uncommon one. But... If we take a step back, it seems the fabric of capitalism, as you've described it, does not allow for morality, for someone to do the right thing. So I'm curious, do you think there is a way for us to integrate any kind of moral compass into capitalism? Part of it is that you do see these kind of glimpses of every dystopian movie you've ever seen, you know, a sort of super rich, you know, protecting themselves with private security and all the worst of the vigilantism and profiteering. But you also see 
just amazing acts of humanity, right? The disasters bring out the best and the worst in people, in my experience, right? And for majority of people, they bring up the best, right? People, when people see suffering, they want to help, whether it is in their own communities or whether it is, you know, seeing footage of the, you know, Haiti earthquake on their television sets. I mean, this is where we see billions of dollars being raised in aid, all kinds of fundraising. Uh, People just want to help. But the tactic that I'm describing, I think the reason why it is so horrific and why people do have that reaction of of just like, that's wrong. Why, you know, how could you be taking advantage of of people in this moment of, of shock and weakness when their whole city has been evacuated to try to, you know, push your economic agenda is is that it goes against what they personally feel in that moment, which is how can I help, right? And so we need structures I think that allow people to be their best selves and your question of, you know, can we change capitalism to let that happen? I mean, I think we need to have a, at the minimum, a much more mixed economy, which means that some large parts of what we do as humans um, are considered too important to be left to capitalism. Like I mentioned that I, you know, I'm, I'm from Canada. I grew up in Canada. Um, I live in the States now, but it's a really striking difference as somebody who's, who's experienced both systems to live in a country where they have just said, look, healthcare is just too basic to be left to the market. So we are just going to take the profit motive out of healthcare. Um, you can still have great doctors, you can choose whatever doctor you know you want to see, unlike all the propaganda that we get. But we're just going to take the profit motive out of it. Um, and I think that if we are going to cope with the kinds of the kinds of shocks that we've already locked in because we have been in denial about just how bad things have gotten, particularly environmentally, we are going to have to kind of put in a floor for people where we say, you know what, healthcare is going to be a given. Everybody's going to have healthcare, and we're not going to leave it to capitalism. We're not going to build in a profit motive for healthcare, And we are going to say that everybody has a right to housing. Um, And we're going to say that everybody has a right to education, and we're going to make public universities free. And we're not going to have people graduate with debt. And there can still be markets. There can still be things that are bought and sold, and there can still be money to be made in that economy. But there will be large parts of it Uh, if we want to have a humane system, that we are going to say, I'm sorry, that's just too important. And when it comes to the climate crisis, um, because we have delayed and delayed and allowed the crisis to get worse and worse and worse, there, I don't believe there is a way to move to a 100% renewable economy as quickly as we need to, if we're going to avert truly catastrophic warming. Uh, And I think California understands that better than most parts of the country because of the fire season just extending more and more and, and people have this growing sense of urgency about that. Um, the transition itself, I don't think it can be left to the market. So that doesn't mean that there's no role for capitalism. It doesn't mean there's no role for markets, but it does mean there's going to have to be a much more robust public sector and a more robust nonprofit sector in general. So not everything controlled by the government, but more community ownership, more cooperative ownership, not just sort of saying capitalism fixed this for us, because I think that's become magical thinking at this stage in history. Well, I think uh, a lot of our understanding of these ideas has to do with their branding. It's about how policy and politicians are presented to us, which uh, reminds me of this article you wrote in 2010 for The Guardian about how corporate branding has taken over American politics. In this piece, you wrote the following of then-President Barack Obama. A preference for symbols over substance and an unwillingness to stick to a morally clear, if unpopular, course is where Obama decisively parts ways with the transformative political movements from which he has borrowed so much. The pop art posters from Che, his cadence from Martin Luther King, his Yes We Can slogan from the migrant workers, Si Se Puede. Obama, in sharp contrast, 
not just to social movements, but to transformative presidents such as FDR, follows the logic of marketing. Create an appealing canvas on which all are invited to project their deepest desires, but stay vague enough not to lose anyone but the committed wing nuts. I wanted to quote your criticism of Obama here, uh, in case anyone listening thinks you may not be even-handed in your assessments. So, with this in mind, how would you describe the brand of President Trump? <laughs> oh my God. Um, you know, I think part of the trouble with Trump is that he is so egregious that, um, you know, everybody looks amazing compared to Trump. And obviously, compared to Trump, you know, Obama is an absolute saint. But I do worry that if things have gotten so bad, there, there is a sort of a retroactive erasure of critical thinking about the Obama years. And I think it's worth remembering that, you know, there were some, there were some very important criticisms of Obama, and we need to learn from them. We need to learn from them for the next time the Democrats are in power. And I do worry that that we've forgotten some of those lessons, right? I'm part of the climate movement, and we had to fight Obama really hard on the Keystone XL pipeline, on the Dakota Access pipeline in Standing Rock. Um, you know, we we eventually won, but we shouldn't have had to fight as hard as we fought. Um, and if, you know, of course, the Dreamers had to fight like hell, and Black Lives Matter did as well. And there was some huge social movements that emerged to take on the Obama administration. Now. In some ways, that speaks well of them in the sense that, you know, I think we don't see those kinds of mass protests because during the Trump era, people understand that nobody's listening, you know, like that it's not it's not possible to influence um, this administration. You have to find other levers of power. And maybe that will be state governments or the city governments, or maybe it'll be uh, taking on corporations for investing in fossil fuels. But you know, having a big climate protest in Washington doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Right. So the significance of Trump, I mean, the passage that you described, I was I was describing President Obama's electoral campaign using the tools of branding in order to sell Obama as a politician. But Obama at that point was not himself a brand, right? I mean, he didn't have a line of products that he was selling. Um, he was just running for office and he had written some books, but that was, you know, that that does not a super brand make. You could argue that now the Obamas are a super brand, but that is a separate issue. Trump is the first super brand, the first branded human to become a president, right? Using his branded platform. And this is, I think, significant to understand because I think it's something that Michael Bloomberg didn't understand when he ran for president. He sort of took Trump literally when tr Trump you know, says that you know, he was running as a successful businessman um, and he would run the country like a business. That was his pitch. And so Michael Bloomberg was like, well, I'm a more successful businessman and you're a lousy businessman and I'm richer than you and I'm going to be president. And that didn't go very well. Um, and I think that that's because Michael Bloomberg fundamentally failed to understand that Donald Trump was successful, not because he was a businessman, but because he was a brand, because he was a celebrity brand, because he had had, what, 13 seasons of The Apprentice, because he had a line of Trump steaks and Trump water and Trump University um, and decades of building his individual brand, right? He didn't become president because he's a successful businessman. He's not a successful businessman. He became president because he's a successful brand. And he is a successful brand, unfortunately. And what his brand is, the big idea that he's been selling all of these years is a simple one. It's, I'm the rich guy, I'm the boss who is so rich, he gets to do whatever he wants to whomever he wants. That is the fantasy that he was selling on The Apprentice. Being the, the big boss in the shiny gold tower who gets to fire and grab and do whatever he wants. And the problem with that as a brand identity when it succeeds in becoming president is that it is kind of uniquely immune to shame um, and to, uh, you know, as I mentioned earlier, the kind of pressure that one would hope to be able to exert over an elected politician because 
the whole point of Trump's brand is that he does whatever he wants and gets away with it. So it's very hard to catch him out. If you catch him in corruption, that's just Trump being Trump, right? Catch him lying, that's just Trump being Trump. Anything he does, it's like, well, at least he is who he seems to be. And Trump supporters are always saying that, right? Well, he is who he seems. He's he's not fake. Mm -hmm. So who he seems to be is a liar (laughs) and somebody who does whatever it takes to advance himself. And that is what he's doing. So how do you catch somebody like that out? It makes him a uniquely difficult person to run against. And it's very, very important for people to understand this. What I was struck by, um, both in your answer just now and in all of your writing, is a kind of boundless passion and energy you have for giving a shit. Um, I just want to go back a little bit. In 1936, your grandfather, whose name was Philip, got a job as an animator for Disney. He worked on Fantasia and Snow White and Pinocchio. He was a political man, but he mostly kept his politics to himself until bonuses that were promised for Snow White failed to materialize. That was in the spring of 1941. And in response, Philip, your grandfather, led a strike on behalf of the Union to demonstrate he, along with your grandmother Anne, lived in a tent across the street from the studio, cooking over an open fire and manning the picket line. Now that we're about 80 years removed from this moment, do you think that's where your passion and activism comes from? Um, That's so interesting to hear all of those details. My God. Um, My grandfather had a big influence on me because he was fired for leading that strike, for helping to lead that strike. He was never able to work as an animator again. Mm -hmm. Um, He did a little bit of animation work under a pseudonym because he was blacklisted. Um, He worked in the shipyards during the war. And he was always, an, uh, he, he, he continued to be an artist. In some ways, it f- freed him to do his own art. He made sculptures his whole life. He had a workshop in the basement of the house he built himself. My grandparents were kind of back to the landers. And he loved Disney. Um, I mean, not the man. He did not love the man. And maybe this comes back to this question that we, we were talking about earlier about polarization and good guys and bad guys. But he really loathed the company and the way they had treated him and what it had done to his life. But he, he still loved the films. He was proud of his work. Um, you know, he didn't see it all as evil. And he just wanted it to be fair. So I think one of the things I learned from him is, like, if you want to be a critic, like, you have to make room for people's complexity and for people, for the fact that we are all we have these contradictions, like we're drawn to this Mm -hmm. shiny world. We want the things we feel bad that the people who made the things weren't treated well, we're pulled in lots of different directions. And if all you do is shake your finger at people and just make them feel bad, they are just going to run in the opposite direction because none of us function that way. We are all filled with contradictions. Well, let's get into the contradictions of you as a teenager. Both of your parents were politically inclined. Your mother was a filmmaker. Uh, Your father worked in medicine. You were, uh, by described in The New Yorker back in 2008, you found your mother's feminism repellent. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Part of your appeal as a teenager, you described yourself as an impeccable liar and rarely got caught. Our fights were less about actual transgressions than about my silence, my sullenness, And, as my dad was always fond of putting it, my refusal to be part of this family. (laughs) So, walk me through. What were you like as a teenager? Anti-political and anti-feminist and all. I mean, I wouldn't say that I was anti-feminist. But I didn't, yeah, I didn't like the culture. I mean, I I had a very acute sense of fairness as a a kid. I think there was a real clash between my family culture and the culture that I was in, enmeshed in. I mean, I, I, grew, I was a child of the 80s. And so, you know, here's my family trying to um, 
kind of continue this culture that they were a part of in the 60s and 70s, but it's the 80s and it's over. And, you know, I didn't get sent to alternative school. I went to mainstream school and the clash between the values of my family and the values of the broader culture were just so intense. And I think my parents were just like a lot of of people who had come through the 60s and, you know, I, we were living in Canada because my father was a war resistor, didn't want to go to Vietnam. Um, you know, our whole family was split up over this. And I think for a lot of people who had been, who had come through that and made real sacrifices because of it, um, the 80s came as a pretty rude shock and they were mad. I think my parents were really angry in the 80s. And I can understand why in retrospect. But for me as a teenager, it, I just felt judged. Like I was saying before, about how you can't, you have to have room for people's complexity. You have to, you have to understand that um, that desire exists, and that this whole architecture of consumer capitalism is built to evoke our desires and insecurities, and that there are beautiful aesthetics that are part of it, and that if all you do is make people feel bad and judged, they will do what I did as a kid, which is just run in the opposite direction. Right. So. Um, I think it informed how I read, like when I wrote No Logo, a lot of this stuff about how I was drawn to the clothes that I now understood were made under these you know, slave-like conditions and you know, visiting those factories in Indonesia and the Philippines. Like I didn't write it like the kind of writing that I was reading, which was just like uh, holding itself apart and wagging its finger. I wrote it as someone who wore the clothes, who wanted wanted the clothes. Like, like I wrote it, I tried not to put myself above it. And I continue to try to do that. And I hope that people still, you know, understand that about me. Because when I wrote, when I wrote No Logo, like that, it was part confessional. <laughs> you know, I called it like part mall rat confessional, <laughs> you know, because I didn't want to, I didn't want to make, to make people feel the way I felt, which was just sort of judged because I don't think we change when we feel that way. And I'd actually don't think we change just when we get information that something that we're a part of is harmful. I think we change when we see real alternatives that we can be a part of that are also appealing. Your mother said uh, about your childhood, we were always fighting something. There were always people who were the bad guy. (laughs) You're talking about moments of transformative change, which don't come as often as perhaps we want them to. But in your case, it seemed that your moment of pivoting came in December of 1989 and even a little before that. You're referring to my mother's stroke when, when I was um, 17. My mother, um, who had, who is a, a documentary filmmaker, retired now, but she she was she was 46 years old um, and very much active and and in her prime and 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 suddenly had a a stroke and then another stroke, a catastrophic stroke. And it turned out she'd had a, a brain tumor in her brain stem made of blood vessels that, that bled. She, she'd had it her whole life and didn't know. And it was a, a catastrophic stroke. Like she lost everything, um, including breathing. She was on a respirator. She had no movement. And, and eventually she had life-saving surgery and she's been able to recover um, uh, a great deal. But though she's always been in a wheelchair since then. And it, it was a moment, obviously much more so for her um, than for me, but for our whole family where it was one of those vertigo moments where everything that you thought you had and, and understood just changes instantly. And I think that my analysis around around moments of shock as moments of that bring out the worst and the best, you know, when I wrote The Shock Doctrine, I talked a lot about regression um, during moments of crisis, because that was something that I had noticed after 9-11, that, that we as a culture had become childlike. And there was this sort of fetish for strong men. Like, remember when everyone liked Rudy Giuliani? <laughs> um, <laughs> and it was like, Rudy, take care of us. It's a strong man in charge, you know? And I mean, people were like feeling that way about Dick Cheney, and it really wasn't healthy, you know? Like, it is good to have um, clear leadership in those moments, but it isn't good to become a child and let um, let these sort of paternal figures have way too much power 
And so I think that my experience with my mother's stroke and the fact that at, for me as a, as a kid, because I was a teenager when it happened, it did force me to grow up really quickly. I know that it had that effect and it was kind of instant, like, okay, like stop fucking around. Like you now have to be the adult and you have to take care of your mother. Um, it taught me a really important lesson about how crisis can either lead to a regression I certainly had moments when I wanted to regress and fall apart, but it also can lead to these moments where you actually, the opposite happens and you grow up really fast and you, you actually kind of become better in crisis. And so all of my interest in shocks and crisis, I think is about trying to figure out like, how do we grow up instead of regress? Um, Because I understand both impulses. Do you think that comes from a, sink or swim mentality is it something like primal within you that that makes you want to progress in that moment where others may feel defeated look i think the survival instinct is powerful in everyone you know like don't you want to survive like don't you want our planet to thrive like aren't you horrified when you see like australia on fire and Paradise, California, burned to the ground. Like, I mean, I believe this is universal. And I just think that there's some alchemy where we we need to like access the part of ourselves that I that is in everyone. We have survive. There is nothing more powerful than our survival instinct. Mm. And when I hear like people surprised that I have it. I want to know what's going on with you. Where's yours? (laughs) (laughs) What I'm mainly getting at is something both human and journalistic. You know, I'm I'm thinking about your life and your work in a context. You know, I'm thinking about in 2002 when you and your partner decided to move to Argentina to make a documentary called The Take. It's a film about a group of laid-off workers who broke into their shutter factory and started uh, it up again as a collective in this time of turmoil, there were protests. The protests turned violent. There were shoot-offs between police and citizens. Your partner, he said to your crew, just be safe. It's not the time to die. And you said, if something is happening and we're the only ones witnessing it, we have a responsibility to posterity. What I'm asking about is where that responsibility in you comes from. Hmm. Huh. It's interesting. I hadn't thought about that for a long time. I mean, we went to Argentina after the economy there went into crisis. Um, They went through five presidents in three weeks and the whole economy um, shut down. The banks were closed and, and I am a, like I, I think I am a journalist first and foremost, and I do have this desire to go to extreme places. Um, like I'm be, be honest about that. Like journalists are weird. Like we do run towards burning buildings. You know, it takes a certain kind of personality type to go into a war zone and to go into a disaster zone where everybody else is going in the opposite direction. So. I, I don't know that I can answer like why I have that, but I do have it. Hmm. Um, and so what you're describing is like, you know, when you are in the moment and the, and, and things start going really wrong and the police are opening fire on protesters, which is the situation that, that you're describing and, and you have a camera, um, you know, everybody who works as a journalist or as a documentary filmmaker, we're all doing that sometimes. And my husband and I have always had a slightly different relationship to risk on this. And to be honest with you, mine has changed, I, you know, since I became a mom. Um, when I, like, I became a mother late, um, I had my son when I was 42. And I knew when I made that decision that it was going to impact this kind of work. Because I do think that when you are, are not a parent it's a simpler decision to make a decision to take on unnecessary risks, 
right? Like maybe bigger picture necessary, mm-hmm. right? Like societally necessary, but once, but for your life, an unnecessary risk. And in the seven years that I've been a parent, I haven't done that level of danger reporting. You've tempered it. Yeah. I mean, which isn't to say that I don't take some risks, but I don't take the same kind of risks. I would describe um, Trump being elected in 2016 as a, a burning building moment. Some would not, I will. And two days after he is elected, you have to give a speech, I believe in Australia. And you have a quote here that I think is a bit timely for right now uh, in regards to Trump winning. You said, we cannot play my crisis is more urgent than your crisis. War trumps climate, climate trumps class, class trumps gender, gender trumps race. That trumping game, my friends, is how you end up with a Trump. Either we fight for a future in which everyone belongs, starting with those being most battered by injustice and exclusion today, or we will keep losing. And there is no time for that. That was four years ago, just about uh, three and a half years ago. How do you think we have done and how do you think we are going to do in the future? I think the past few years under Trump, there have been some really remarkable attempts to get out of our individual silos and identity boxes and not erase difference, but find common ground across difference and try to build something like a coherent political agenda and a vision of the future that is appealing enough that we could have a multiracial, cross-generational, broad-based movement that was powerful enough to win. And and I think the point of what I was saying there is like, there's a lot of power on the progressive side of the spectrum, but there is also a lot of division. Um, And so I, I I think there's a lot of, there are a lot of examples that I can point to where I, where I see a lot of progress, including the, the vision of of a green new deal um, that has been articulated by people like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and fought for by grassroots youth-based movements like Sunrise. I've spent a lot of the past three, four months now really deeply immersed in the Sanders campaign. Um, I've never been involved in a presidential campaign before. Um, I supported Bernie Sanders in 2016, um, but that consisted of writing an article about it for the nation. I mean, I wasn't out there campaigning or anything like that. And as somebody who's, you know, identified as, you know, even though I'm like identified as an author, I still feel like a journalist. And so I've always sort of felt like, is it really my role to get involved in campaigns like that? But I think because Trump is such a threat, um, I made a decision this time around to do more than just write an article. And I formally endorsed Bernie Sanders. I spoke at multiple rallies. I introduced him and at a couple of rallies. I went to New Hampshire and Iowa twice and Nevada and Texas and worked as a volunteer for the campaign. And it felt amazing, I have to tell you. It felt better than anything I've ever been involved in in my political life. It was beautiful. Um, and beautiful because it was, and I had so many conversations with friends who told me like, I can't support Bernie because I don't like the Bernie bros on Twitter and they're so obnoxious. And I'm just like, please just come to an event. You will see that it is the exact opposite of everything you're seeing online. Like in person, it is such a feminist campaign. It's overwhelmingly women who are speaking. It is so diverse this slogan, not me, us, which is the slogan of the campaign, um, has become this phrase that has taken on a life of its own and it is no longer just about Bernie. It's now about people kind of escaping the meanness of our time, like the not me, 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 like that is late capitalism, but actually trying to find an us beyond just the constant you know, hyper-individualism. And it was amazing. And and I'll tell you, like, I mean, answering that question of where we're at, it's hard for me because I was in Nevada when we won that 
that caucus so decisively and felt like just a kind of political joy and just raw joy that I have never experienced politically. Um, just the pride of all of these young Latino <laughs> kids who had organized their communities in incredible ways, who had organized Uber drivers and taxi drivers and casino workers and hotel workers. And they won that thing. And they really, we really thought that we were going to win the primary. Mm. Okay. Here's something that may be positive and that you, I think, believe in. Um, we started this podcast talking about um, the comparisons between 2008 and 2020, between the housing meltdown and the coronavirus. And we listed all the negative things. You know, they suspend democracy. They push through free market politics. The market crashes. They exploit that even more. Regular people pay the price of any bailout that happens. But it doesn't always go this way. And something you've been talking about is how the Great Depression turned into the New Deal. Do you feel any hope that we could have a similar turn? I mean, I have to have that hope. Um, and I do, I do believe that people are seeing that this system is failing. It's crashing. And... It's now asking so much of people just to prop it up, you know, like maybe it's okay if we just let all the old people die so that we can get the stock market going again. And that's just not okay. And, you know, we've sort of had this slogan on the left, like people before profits, but it's kind of never felt so literal. And I think it's never been laid so bare for so many people. And so I... You know, I think what we can't have come up against most in this electoral cycle, this primary, is this idea that maybe we can just have like a brief return to the pre-Trump normal, that there can just be a kind of a gentle turning back of the clock and we can all rest for a bit and recover. And I get the appeal of that. Like, God, people are exhausted. People are traumatized by this president and by what these years have been. But unfortunately, I think it doesn't work that way. And so I think what FDR was able to do in the early 1930s and when, when he first ran was say to people, like, we can get through this crisis, but we really are going to have to move forward. We have to go somewhere we haven't been before. We have to tell new stories. We need new institutions. It isn't going to be a reversion to the past. It is going to be a leap to somewhere we haven't been before. And he helped people access their courage and actually their deeper desire for something better than just that reversion to the past. And he spoke to people's whole selves um, you know, not just their economic selves, but the their spiritual selves, right? That he understood that the depression was not just the state of the economy, but actually the state of people's, you know, mental health and that they were depressed and scared and that we had to revive people, right? So that's my hope is that we can find that part of ourselves and that we can listen to people who are trying to speak to that part of ourselves. Um and just try to get somewhere that's really safe, not some mythical version of the past that wasn't actually safe for huge numbers of people. I know you don't believe in utopias. I've read that in every article about you. <laughs> if you had it your way, we run an election in 2020, regardless of who is the president, let's not make it about the president. Let's make it about ideas here. What would you like to see in the next four years? I'd like to see a collective purpose, a sense of collective purpose. Because I think what is destroying us maybe more than anything else is just the extent to which we really feel like we are on our own in every way. And that's why we see people responding to crisis through these hyper-individualistic acts of hoarding, right? Because we don't believe anybody, like we don't believe we can do this together. And so I think what I want more than anything else is, is like, some kind of shift where we are doing something together. 
And, you know, I believe that that something should be a Green New Deal, a way of building a fair economy that is not at war with life on this planet, that is about safeguarding a habitable future for all of us and our kids. Um, and I think that that sense of collective purpose could also break through this debilitating polarization um, as well. Uh, before we go, my last question is not a political one. But as a mother and partner and person who may very well be infected with this disease, has it made you reevaluate your own personal beliefs? What you find valuable or where you find purpose? I feel like there's a call to slow down, and I'm trying to listen to that. And I'm trying to get to a different speed and you know, we live in a culture that is just, everybody's just driven, driven, driven all the time. And I mean, I still believe in a, more than ever in the need for deep social change, but I don't believe that I have to personally drive it in that, in that kind of way. Like I'm trying to live with more balance in, in terms of needing to be there for my son and needing to do things that I as a woman have never done before, like bake bread, <laughs> which I actually am in the middle of right now. And it's at a very, very sensitive time. <laughs> and, the, and the first loaf that I tried did not rise at all. And so if I don't go very soon, we're going to be dealing with a serious situation. But like the idea that I would be baking bread <laughs> is such an absurdity if you knew me. Um, but I want to come out of this with new skills and new balance <laughs> Um, and I also just want to push back against the ways in which this is pushing us to just think in terms of our nuclear family, because even though we are maybe isolated in our nuclear homes, we the real the deeper story here is a story of interconnection um, that of our porousness, our literal porousness to each other. Um, so yeah. Well, I hope your bread turns out well for one. Um, and moreover, uh, I wish you a full recovery. Thank you so and much. And your family good health. And truly, thank you so much for doing this with me, especially right now. It was such a pleasure. Naomi Klein, thank you. Thank you. I'm happy to report that Naomi has turned a corner and is feeling better. Her bread, for those wondering, also turned out all right. I want to give a special thanks this week to Avi Lewis and Jackie Joyner. To learn more about Naomi Klein and her work, you can visit our show notes at www.talkeasypod.com. You can also purchase any number of her books on her site at naomiklein.org. If you enjoyed today's episode, I imagine our talks with other writers may be of interest to you. Gloria Steinem, Morgan Parker, Malcolm Gladwell, Wesley Morris, Patricia Lockwood, Jelani Cobb, and many, many more. You can find all of those on our website, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Apple Music, Stitcher, wherever you may be listening. For updates on our show, be sure to follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at TalkEasyPod. You can also join our email list by dropping us a line at talkeasypod at gmail.com. This show is made possible each week by our incredible team. Our executive producer is Janixa Bravo. Our associate producer is Nikki Spina. Illustrations by Krishna Shenoy. Graphics by Ian Jones. Music by Dylan Peck and Jin Sang. Our editors are Andre Lin and Kat Owen. Our social media is by Deja Washington. Our engineer is Tim Moore, and we tape out of York Recording here in Los Angeles, California. And finally, the show is produced by Caroline Reebok. I'm Sam Fragoso. Thank you for listening to Talk Easy. We'll be back next Sunday with Beto O'Rourke. Until then, have a good week, everyone. The tradition of breaking tradition continues 
with the return of the unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business at Mobile World Congress. This is an event that celebrates innovators whose bold actions took their industries to new places. If that sounds like you and you're a T-Mobile for Business customer, enter today. If you win, you'll be publicly honored among some of the most influential leaders in industry and me. I'll be there too. Enter now at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cb for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. 